talk to the ducks as they dance in the rain And you probably think I'm a little insane Not everybody thinks the same But everybody's got a brain David Eagleman is a neuroscientist, best-selling author, fiction writer and former stand-up comic whose research interests include the perception of time and the ways technology can enhance the workings of the human mind. I'm Sally Davies, the digital editor of the Financial Times Weekend, here on the phone with David to talk about his new book, The Brain, which we extracted in last week's magazine. It's a probing exploration of the organ that gives rise to all art, science and perhaps most mysteriously of all, consciousness. Welcome, David. Great to be here. So, David, in your book, you make the provocative statement that reality is a construction of the brain. Now, a friend of mine who's a neuroscientist tells me that there's essentially two kinds of neuroscientists. There are those who are hardcore materialists who basically think that all consciousness and experience is just a question of burrowing deeper down into the chemical and electrical reactions that make up the brain and will eventually understand it. And then there are those who think that there's possibly some unknowable element to consciousness that is beyond the realm of science. Where do you sit on that spectrum? So currently, the question of consciousness is probably our biggest unsolved mystery. And and what that question means is, how do you put together physical pieces and parts and get private subjective experience out of it? In other words, how do you put together a whole bunch of things that interact physically, cells in this case, and have the experience of the smell of cinnamon or the taste of feta cheese or the reminiscence of a sunset in Hawaii, this is an unsolved question. It is the case that at this moment, we don't really have a theory of of how those mental arises from the physical, but we do know that they are irrevocably connected. And if you walk down any neurology ward, you'll see lots of people who have had very small amounts of brain damage due to a tumor or a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, and that changes their entire mental experience, as well as their risk aversion or decision-making or capacity to speak language or a hundred other things. And, and that's how we know that the physical and the mental are, are related to one another, even though we don't yet know the details of how they connect. And I was very struck in your book that you cite a really quite disturbing experiment where participants are subjected to an electrical impulse in their brain that makes them move their hand in a particular way, but then when asked to describe it afterwards, they actually say that it was their choice to move their hand in that way. I just wondered what you thought this said about the notion of free will, to which I certainly still have some emotional commitment. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the big questions about free will is if we don't have it, why do we feel so strongly as though we do? The the issue about free will is that the brain is a massive network that bankrupts our language with its complexity, but in the end, it's a network. It's a physical system. That's why many people land on the side of thinking, look, there's, there's nowhere to slip a ghost in the machine. I personally think it's a possibility that our science is still a little bit too young to understand exactly what we mean by free will. But what I think we can conclude is that if there's free will at all, it is a bit player in the system. It's the smallest bit of what's going on because essentially everything that you think and act and feel and believe, all of these are generated by parts of your brain to which you have no access or acquaintance, and they they come about as a result of your genetics and your environment interacting. And so if there's any free will left on the top, whatever we even mean by that, it's a really small bit of what's going on. We don't have as much 
uh, play in the wheel as we imagine we do. But one thing I find really striking about that interpretation, David, is that we've structured large parts of society and the economy around notions like individual responsibility and choice. And I just wondered that if it is true that large parts of our behaviour are not accessible to our conscious mind or indeed driven by these neurological processes that we don't have access to, what are the implications of that? Well, I think this is going to call for big changes in in the legal system, in the way we run our social policy. You know, what we do, especially in, in my country, in the United States, we have mass incarceration. In fact, the United States has the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. This is because we imagine, like most legal systems around the world, that all brains are equal, which is a very charitable idea, but it's demonstrably false. People are very different on the inside. And uh, it also imagines that we are practical reasoners. That's the term of art, which means you walk into a situation, you assess what's going on, and you make a choice based on your free will. Modern neuroscience suggests these are not good assumptions about how humans actually operate. Instead, because of this issue that so much of who you are and what you do comes about as this confluence of genetics and experience, and brains are really, really different from one another, what, what we need is a more customized, tailored legal system that looks at people as individuals and does customized sentencing and customized rehabilitation. We could run a legal system that is both less expensive and, more importantly, has higher utility and is more humane. In, in this country, our prison population has over-quadrupled because of the war on drugs, and this is completely unwinnable as a war. The right way to deal with the drug problem is to address drug demand, and that is the brain of the addict. And at this point, we know so much about the circuitry and pharmacology of drug addiction. Well, I guess that gives rise to the question, though, is the purpose of the legal system to minimise social harm and allow for rehabilitation, or is there a legitimate place for the desire for retribution, for example, on the part of victims? We're, we're definitely hardwired as humans, to have this very retributive impulse. We want to punish people. In fact, we're so wired that we care about punishing cheaters of any system of rules that we set up. And we can see this in brain imaging studies and so on, that as soon as somebody breaks the rules, whether that's cutting in line to committing a crime, we really want to punish them. The question that we have as a society is, can we override these, these basic impulses, and at least in, in some cases, to do something that is more fruitful, that actually solves the problem better? And I think we've already made a lot of progress that way as a society about overriding our impulses. Just as one example, we are also wired up for xenophobia. We, we don't like people as much or we're more suspicious of them who don't look and sound exactly like us. But, um, you know, in this country we passed anti-discrimination housing laws. So you can't not sell your house to somebody just because they're different from you. And this is just one example of hundreds where the legal system tries to crystallize into place our best impulses rather than our basest impulses. It's interesting when you say that we're hardwired for xenophobia, that I think you flew to Sarajevo after the war to understand the neuroscience of genocide. I was curious for you to talk a little bit more about how the brain can help us understand the process of dehumanisation and these horrific acts that have happened in human history. Yeah, it turns out that dehumanisation of an outgroup is something that happens literally in the brain. And what I mean is this, there are particular networks in the brain that are involved in understanding other people as people. 
And these networks are active if I'm thinking about, let's say, what you're going to say next or how you feel. But if I'm dealing with a piece of furniture or an animal, those networks aren't active. So it turns out that with something like propaganda, which is the oldest neural manipulation tool that we have, those networks that are involved in understanding you as a human, they get dialed down so that now I can see you and treat you as an object or an animal. And that's, of course, the, the motif of propaganda is that the outgroup is less than human or is animal-like. Can you talk a little bit about some of the experiments you're working on at the moment? I know that you've done some work with children that show how early on in their neurological development they're capable of picking up on social signals. One of the projects we're doing now has to do with understanding how the brain empathizes with other people. So, for example, if you were to get stabbed in the hand with a syringe needle, that activates a particular network in your brain that we summarize as the pain matrix, your feeling pain. But here's the striking part. If you watch me get stabbed in the hand with a needle, that same network of areas will light up in your brain, even though you're not the one getting hurt, because... That's what empathy is about. You're literally running a simulation of what it is like to be me. And so the same network of areas lights up. So this is the study we did in my lab. We have people in the brain scanner. They're watching hands getting stabbed with a needle. And we look at this very low-level empathic response that they have. But now, in the second part of the experiment, we have six different hands that might get stabbed. And we label each one with a one-word label. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, Scientologist, Hindu. And now a hand gets randomly selected and stabbed with a needle. And the question is, does your brain care as much when it's an outgroup of yours that's getting stabbed versus your in-group? And there's some amount of individual variability, but on average what we find is that people's brains care a lot less when it's not their in-group getting stabbed, when it's an out-group. I think it's it's also fascinating to look at how your work intersects with some of the recent advances in behavioural economics. I mean, I'm thinking here particularly of the work of Daniel Kahneman, who's perhaps been the most public figure bringing to light the fact that whilst human beings behave in a largely reasonable way most of the time, that doesn't mean we act because of reasons. There are all sorts of other impulses driving our behaviour. Well, in my last book, Incognito, I built this framework of the brain as a team of rivals. So the idea is that you have a lot of neural networks that are all competing to be in control. And so strangely, I think the way to understand the brain is as a machine built out of conflict or built on conflict. So the idea is that you've got different drives. They're all trying to steer the ship of state. You can think about it like a neural parliament with different political parties, all of whom love their country but have very different ways of going about it. And, and, and it's this framework is this understanding that allows us to understand why humans are so nuanced and complicated and, and interesting because we're not single-minded. We're not really individuals in a sense, but we're collections of drives. You know, just as an example, if I put some warm chocolate chip cookies down in front of you, part of your brain wants to eat that. It's a rich energy source. Part of your brain says, don't eat it, you're going to get fat. Part of your brain says, okay, I tell you what, I'll eat it, but I'll promise to go to the gym tomorrow. And you can argue with yourself and cuss at yourself and cajole yourself and make contracts with yourself. It's all you, but it's different parts of you. And it's from this understanding that we get all of the interesting results about behavioral economics and also what uh, nowadays is sometimes called neuroeconomics.
You talk about the brain being a field of battle and a site of warfare. We're very constrained in only being able to use the brain to understand itself. And I think this ties in with the last part of your book where you talk about the ways in which we can use technology to extend the brain. As far as where our species is going, I think we are certainly on this path of becoming what some people call post-human or transhuman. That's already happening, and in fact, that has been happening for a long time. All around me, people are wearing contact lenses and eyeglasses. They're not dying of gangrene. They're not dying of childhood diseases. We're already a different species than we were quite recently. I think it's not simply that we're using our brains to figure out our brains. We're also putting into place these larger frameworks like the scientific method, and that helps us a lot to make progress. For example, we are curing deafness now. So that's something that my lab works on. We've built a vest that's worn under the clothing. It's covered with vibratory motors. We have deaf participants wear the vest, and we convert the sound from the world, like my voice, into patterns of vibration in real time on the torso. And deaf people can learn to hear through their skin rather than through an auditory system that, for whatever reason, is broken for them. Who gets to choose in what areas we extend our senses and who will ultimately have access to that expanded realm of perception? My fear is that those that are most likely to be providing an enhanced form of experience are going to be private companies. And is that necessarily going to mean that access to this realm of the post-human is distributed equitably? I agree with you about the access problem. Unfortunately, that's not unique to this topic. It's something that affects everything from from cell phones to computers to test preparation for graduate school. As far as this particular sensory expansion project, I've spun a company off out of my lab, and we're building the vest now, and it's cheap. It's about this about the price of, a, of an expensive cell phone. Could we come back to the discussion about consciousness? You talk about the possibility of systems beyond the brain being conscious and the kind of properties that those systems would need to have. You cite, for example, the possibility of a city becoming conscious. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, now this is just, this is in the realm of speculation, but the mystery that we have to solve is how consciousness arises from physical pieces and parts. When I'm talking about consciousness, I mean that part of you that flickers to life when you wake up in the morning that wasn't there when you were in a deep sleep. So consciousness is your awareness of the world around you, of your own subjective experiences, and so on. The question is, how does that come about from the physical stuff? What we think in general is that if you have a system of sufficient complexity that has the right kind of properties, then consciousness is an emergent property from that. And then that leads to a question. It's just a speculative question, but, you know, when you look around a city, the city of London, there's so much interaction of pieces and parts from tube lines to handshakes to telephone calls. Might a city be conscious if, if what's required is uh, enough pieces and parts interacting? And, of course, it would be difficult to know because London doesn't have uh, ears and a mouth for us to have a conversation with it about this, but as we further develop theories about what are the properties required for consciousness to emerge, we might eventually be able to say what it is like to be any kind of giant complex system. It's quite a remarkable data storage and processing challenge to map a human brain. You write that to capture the full network of neural connections in a single human brain, it would take a zettabyte of data, which is the entire storage capacity of the planet. How promising do you think that avenue of research is and when is it likely to be possible to download yourself into a machine? The field is moving in the right direction. The, the question is, will it actually work if you make 
a Xerox copy of your brain and simulate it in a computer, will that be you? That's also a matter of debate, but the reason for thinking it might work is because of what's called the computational hypothesis of brain function, which just means that maybe the important part about what's going on in the brain isn't the physical wet, gushy stuff, the neurons, but instead it's about the software that they are implementing. In other words, what if you could run that same software on different hardware? Instead of out of neurons, you build it out of beer cans and tennis balls, or you build it out of zeros and ones in a computer simulation. And of course, we couldn't have a conversation about the brain if we didn't talk about the prospects for uh, general artificial intelligence. David, what's your view on the likelihood of technologists being able to develop a machine that approximates human intelligence? You know, the interesting part is that we've been throwing the smartest people on the planet at this problem since the 1960s, and it's turned out to be a really hard problem, much more than anyone thought. So people have different views on what AI is, and every video game now and lots of apps and so on claim that they have AI baked into what they're doing, but it's not the kind of AI that we've always hoped for. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, we saw Star Wars, and we assumed that by now we would have C-3PO or, you know, lots of things like that. But, but in fact, we have lots of really cool computational tricks that people have come up with, but nothing that's really like a human intelligence. I think the game has shifted now to really trying to figure out what Mother Nature's tricks are. In other words, studying neuroscience instead of trying to come up with AI from scratch and I know some people will uh, react to my saying this, and they'll say that we still should be able to figure out the principles of AI from scratch and come up with something very clever. But Mother Nature, in contrast, has had billions of years to run trillions of experiments in parallel. And so what she's come up with are really amazing tricks that we haven't even had a hint of a shadow of a notion of yet. It's interesting you say that, actually, because Demis Hassabis, the founder of Google DeepMind, the artificial intelligence company that was acquired last year by Google, has said in a presentation before that actually there may be more than one way of creating artificial intelligence beyond replicating the human mind. But the field of possibilities is so much larger than our capacity to explore it, and so it makes most sense to model machine intelligence on human brains, which is why his company and Google are banking on neural networks or algorithms that are based on the way the brain processes information. I'd like to just finish up the conversation by taking a slightly more personal turn. I mean, you've had a really fascinating background for a neuroscientist. You wanted to be a writer when you were younger. You studied literature and political science, and you've even tried your hand at being a screenwriter and a stand-up comic. So I just wondered how this, these sort of experiences had influenced your work as a neuroscientist. You know, I don't know the way they've influenced my work. I think they've certainly influenced my communication of the work. Uh, you know, I feel like I've been very lucky in the field to just pursue the questions that are of maximum interest to me. Um, there are a million things that one can study in the field, but uh, the ones that I think I've gravitated towards are those that have social importance in some way. You used to describe yourself as an atheist, but you now call yourself a possibilian when it comes to the idea of the afterlife. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, it's not so much about the afterlife. It's just, it's just this issue of science is the best tool that we have for understanding the world around us, but we're still in a place where there's so much that we don't understand. And so the reason I've called myself a possibilian is just to sort of stake out a middle ground between 
on the one hand, the atheism movement, which sometimes pretends to have too much certainty about what's going on, and, and on the other end, the fundamentally religious, who also claim to have a lot of certainty about what's going on. And it felt to me that, as a, from my scientific point of view, that we know far too much to buy into any particular religious story, and we know far too little to, to claim that we've got it all figured out and that there's nothing more interesting going on in the cosmos. So, David, you've also written you've written fiction in the past. You've been influenced by writers like Borges. I was just curious to know whether you had any other projects at the moment beyond neuroscience that were of interest. I, I am working on my next book of fiction. My book, Some, took seven years to write, and it, it looks like I'm on track for that with my next book of fiction also. It's taking me a very long time because I'm so busy running the lab, and I've got two startup companies now and I'm directing the Center for Science and Law. It's a real challenge for me to find windows of time to work on my fiction, but I am working on my next book of fiction, and it's something that is very deeply meaningful to me. (laughs) Well, in light of that, thank you very much for making the time. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thanks so much, David. You as well. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Sally Davies, Digital Editor of the Financial Times Weekend. Some people use it to balance their hats While there are folks who use it to outsmart their cats But thinking that's not where it's at Cause everybody's got a brain Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.